Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you'll be uplifted, empowered and revived by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ram Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now let's get into this week's message. So, we are talking about the theme of the Watchmen. The particular chapter we're in today is called God is looking for watchmen. This is the third Sunday that we're focusing on this theme, and we have covered a lot of ground so far, a whole lot of ground. And so let me give you a brief recap of what we've covered so that we're sort of on the same page for going forward today. Now, I can't go back and cover every single detail, so if you've missed any of the messages over the last two or three weeks here at Ramp Church, I encourage you to get on the Ramp Church Manchester YouTube channel and check those out so that way we're growing together as a body in this call of being a watchman. Now, I'll describe in just a moment a little more where that phrase came from, God is looking for watchmen. Um, But let me start here. What does it mean to be a watchman? The first thing we discovered about the call of the watchman is that it is not an addition, it's an interruption. The call of the watchman doesn't come to simply sort of add a little bit extra to our lives. It comes to interrupt our lives. And it reorients us around God's storyline, God's priorities, and God's kingdom. That's why in the book of Ezekiel, the call of the watchman comes through the form of a whirlwind. You don't negotiate with a whirlwind. When the whirlwind shows up, you rearrange your life to accommodate it. It does not rearrange itself to accommodate you. So that is the call of the watchman. It's an interruptive call, but not just a vocation. It's an interruption for the sake of relationship. The call of the watchman, first and foremost, is a call to friendship with God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to his disciples, come and watch with me. Then he says, could you not watch with me for one hour? In other words, I was looking for friends who would join me in my moment of sorrow. The question is, do you know those areas of sorrow within the heart of God? He's acquainted with our sorrows, but are we acquainted with his? And that's what it is to be a watchman. You say yes to interruptive friendship with God so that you can be with him in his hour of sorrow and be united with his heart. Last week, we looked at six internal qualities of the watchman. I won't go through all of those, but those are important to keep in mind because today we're going to talk about the external side of the watchman. But as we go through them, you'll need to remember the internal side if you're going to apply the external side rightly. Because if you watch without having the infrastructure we talked about last week, then your watching can turn into gossip rather than intercession. To be a watchman is not to be a gossip. It's not to be a busybody. It's not to be in everybody else's business and talking to everybody about what's going on and you use the title watchman to justify it. That's not what a watchman is. So the internal qualities of the watchman is very important if we're going to engage with the external side appropriately. So before I talk about the external side of the watchman vocation, let me go back to the dream that I had that really launched this whole chapter and tell you how God supernaturally emphasized the dream to make sure I didn't ignore it. So I won't go and tell the entire dream again, but I'll tell you sort of the main focus of it. I'm in a church, and all of a sudden a whirlwind shows up, and it picks me up. 
uh, I fly around the room for a few moments, and then the whirlwind throws me out of the air to the ground. I look at a group of men around me, and I say, God is looking for watchmen, or cities will be no more, just like the nine cities in the west of Israel. Now, having said that, let me again clarify that the word watchmen is not gender exclusive. It is a vocational call for men and women of God who want to grow in friendship with him. So just to add that footnote. But I say that, I say God is looking for watchmen or cities will be no more, just like the nine cities in the west of Israel. Now, when I say that in the dream, I'm thinking to myself, what am I talking about? I actually say in the dream, what does that even mean after I prophesy it? Because it was not on my radar. Again, this was an interruption. Not like the, not, this dream was not like a climactic moment that came from months and years of study and then God gives me this dream. It was something that was not on my radar and interrupted me in the night. All right, so I had this dream. I prophesy it. God's looking for watchmen or cities will be no more, just like the nine cities in the west of Israel. And I'm, I'm like, nine cities in the west of Israel, is that even in the Bible? What am I talking about? What nine cities in the west? Is that, am I referring to anything that has biblical or a historical reality behind it? So once I wake up from the dream, of course I write it down, and I'm praying over this dream, I'm process, processing the dream, and I'm curious now to figure out what it's even talking about. Nine cities in the west of Israel that were destroyed. So is there somewhere in the Bible where I can go to learn what this means? I begin to do a little bit of research, and as I do, I come across an old commentary, Old Testament commentary, that was published in the late 1800s. <clears throat> and I, I'm going through it, and I, I, I'm reading about what I think is an introduction to the book of Ezekiel. And the reason I think that I'm reading that is because the title of this commentary is Ezekiel to Malachi. So I'm in the book, and I'm like, okay, Ezekiel in the title. I'm going to read his introduction to the book of Ezekiel. Now, as I'm reading that, I come across this passage that says in chapter 1, the prophet names nine cities that are appointed for destruction. When I read that, I am astonished. Because I'm like, nine cities appointed for destruction. Wow, God's really real. I want to find out more details. So I go to Ezekiel chapter 1. I go to the passage that I think the author is introducing. I read through it, and there's no mention of nine cities. There's not a mention of one city. I'm not quite sure sort of where I you know, lost the storyline, but I'm like, well, the, the author of this commentary said there were nine cities appointed for destruction. When I go to Ezekiel chapter 1, I can't find them. So I go back to the book that I've been reading, and I realized I was in the wrong chapter. I thought I had been reading an introduction to the book of Ezekiel, only to find out I was reading an introduction to the book of Micah, the book with my name. And when I see that, I'm gripped, and I'm like, okay, before I get too excited, let me go to Micah and actually see if I'm in the right location. I go to Micah chapter 1, and in the few verses right in the middle of the chapter, he names nine cities in the west of Israel that were appointed for destruction. And then later, historically, what happened is during the Assyrian invasion of Israel, they faced massive consequences for their sin. When I realized nine cities west of Israel appointed for destruction, and they're listed in the book of Micah, I still don't know what that means, but I'm really excited about it. Because it has my name on it. 
It has my name on it. I was talking about that dream in that moment, that confirmation with a leader later, and he said this to me. He said, the reason why I was in the book of Micah is because this is a call God has given you and commissioned you with it. And so anyway, that is very close to my heart. So anyway, I had that dream early, early, early on a Sunday morning. It was sometime between 3 and 5 a.m. So in Hamilton, we have services on Sunday nights. So I had that day to process the dream, pray over it, journal about it, find that. And, you know, in the book of Micah, I'm very excited. So when I get to prayer before the service that night, our team for prayer is there. And I just, I'm like, guys, you know, I, I know we're supposed to be praying. I just got to tell you this encounter I had last night. It was so wild. It was so crazy. So I tell the dream. I'm talking about the nine cities, God's looking for watchmen, all of that stuff. As I'm telling the dream, one of our leaders at the ramp named Josh Hollingsworth, he is sitting there and he says he hears from the Lord the name Linda. The Lord speaks to him, Linda. And he knows within his heart, oh, I need to contact Linda because she needs to hear this dream. Now, Linda is a, is a woman that Josh knows that leads a national prayer network. Like once a week on Wednesday mornings, they will have a conference call where all of these people that, that are, are, you know, uh, want to lean into intercession and prayer, where they get on this call and they all pray together about different prayer targets. And Josh has helped her lead those Wednesday mornings occasionally. He hadn't done it in a while, but he thinks to himself, oh, Lord's speaking to her, the Lord's speaking to me, the name Linda. I need to make sure that I contact Linda because Linda and her prayer network, they need to hear this call. He reaches down for his phone and he realizes his phone is at home and he didn't bring it to service. For those that know that Pastor Josh, that's not a surprise. Sometimes it's hard to get in touch with him. Dominique says, amen. Uh, anyway, so he looks down and his phone is at home. So we go through the whole service. He gets home late that night. When he gets there, he checks his phone, and he's got five text messages from Linda. You guessed it. She began texting him the moment we were in prayer, and he heard her name from the Lord. When, she, when, he, texts me, when he checks his messages, he realizes that he, she is texting him because she wants him to lead the prayer call that week. She's like, Josh... The Lord really put you on my heart. I feel like you need to lead our prayer call this week. There's something the Lord that's giving you, there's something the Lord has given you that our prayer network needs to hear. So he's like, this is perfect. He doesn't tell the dream yet. He goes, Linda, you know, you were just in my mind. I felt the Lord put you on my heart. I'm excited to lead prayer on Wednesday. So we go through that week. Wednesday morning comes along, and once he gets done with the prayer call, he calls me. I'm on the road. I'm driving back to Hamilton. He calls me, and he goes, Micah, you're not going to believe what happened this morning. I said, what? He said, you know, I, I, when you were, you know, he tells me the whole story. I heard the name Linda. I checked my phone. When I got home, she had contacted me. I led the prayer thing this morning. He said, so when she introduced me to the prayer call, she didn't say a whole lot about what they were doing or their prayer targets lately. She said, hey, guys, this is Josh Hollingsworth. I felt like he was supposed to lead the call this morning. Here he is. Josh, take it away. Josh tells the dream, the nine cities in the west of Israel, God's looking for watchmen, the whole thing. When he gets done telling the dream, Linda gets back on the call and says, guys, 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 I didn't tell him. I didn't tell him. And he says, you didn't tell me what? She said, well, what you don't know, Josh, is today is the last day of a nine-day fast that we're all on. 
And the reason we're on a nine-day fast is because God gave us nine cities in the United States to pray for and told us, you are watchmen for these nine cities. Pray concerning their destiny. When he told me that, I was even more astonished than when I realized the nine cities were in the book of Micah. And it just seemed like the Lord was emphasizing the gravity of this call. The reason he's emphasizing the the city's component is because there is a sense of sobriety when you say yes to the call of the watchman. It's not just, again, a, a luxurious like addition to your walk with God. It is something that interrupts you for the sake of others and for the sake of cities. Now, part of your homework, if you're looking for homework, I'll give you some. I won't like you know grade you later on it, but if you're looking for some homework, I, here I, I'll give you some. I encourage you to go read the entirety of Ezekiel chapter 3. Maybe you've already done that during this chapter. Maybe you haven't. But go read the entirety of it because Ezekiel chapter 3 includes Ezekiel's initial call to be a watchman. Toward the end of it, that's what we read last week, it includes the prophetic sensitivity you have to have as a watchman. I'll reference that again in just a moment. But the middle of it talks about the sobriety of being a watchman. That what you see, what you hear from God, you are now responsible for. And he speaks to him and says, Ezekiel, if I speak to you, show you something, and you don't do something with it, then their blood is on your hands. I hold you accountable for what I reveal to you. That's why the call of the watchman is such a sober thing. I think one of the reasons why God went so out of his way, so to speak, to confirm the destiny of cities component, because this is not just about adding a new cultural experience to the church. It's about souls hanging in the balance and God looking for people that can partner with his heart and submit their lives to build his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Excited about it. Okay, so that was the confirmation pieces I had referenced in, uh, in week one. Now let me get back into a teaching vein. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about six areas, areas of watchfulness. Six areas of watchfulness. So last week we talked about six internal qualities of the watchman. Today I want to talk to you about the external side, six areas of watchfulness. Because when we talk about being a watchman, you may be asking yourself the question, watch for what? Look where? Where do I point my eyes? Where should I be like uh, concerned about? What's a starting point? And so I want to talk to you about six areas of watchfulness. And so I'm going to give you the area, and I'll give you a question to ask yourself as you are leaning into that area as a watchman. So number one, the counsel of the Lord. That is the first area of watchfulness, the counsel of the Lord. The counsel of the Lord. And here is the question to ask, what is God saying? The counsel of the Lord. What is God saying? If you don't remember any other area, remember this area. Because it is the most significant of the watchmen. And that's what the end of Ezekiel chapter 3 is all about. Ezekiel, I've called you to be a watchman. You have a vocal responsibility before people. However, the way in which you exercise your vocal responsibility is first and foremost, you shut yourself in your house until I speak to you. So the beginning of the watchman call is asking the question, what is God saying? It's not looking at the world and then responding according to human reasoning. 
It is getting the counsel of the Lord. As we were in prayer before service this morning, James posed this question. Do you know what Manchester looks like in the spirit? We know what it looks like in the natural. Do we know what it looks like in the spirit? Do we see things through God's lens? The whole point of the book of Revelation is that God got John high enough that he could look at the earth and history and future through God's perspective rather than his own. Do we know what God sees? Do we know the counsel of the Lord? So with each area of watchfulness, and we, with each question, I'm going to give you at least one verse. On some of these, I'll give you two verses. On others, I'll give you three. But most of this will still be pretty brief. That sounds like a lot. It's actually all pretty brief. So the first reference... The first reference I already gave you, that's the end of Ezekiel chapter 3, talking about watching for the counsel of the Lord. Here's another one, and this is where Habakkuk comes in. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I love this verse. I will stand my watch. I love it. I, just, I love the language of I'm just going to stand my watch. In other words, I'm just going to be faithful to be there. It's the whole embracing boredom concept. I'm just going to stand my watch. When it doesn't look like anything's happening, I'm still going to be faithful to my post to be with the Lord. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. Some translations put set myself on the ramp. I probably should have used one of those translations. But anyway, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see... What he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. So the first call of Habakkuk as a prophet is to stand his post and watch for what? Watch for what God will say. And not just the pleasant things, what God's going to say when I'm corrected. In other words, I've poured out my heart on some areas and he's probably going to rebuke me for where I was wrong about why I poured out my heart. But that's okay too. I'm going to stand here and receive whatever it is he says. What is God saying about your life, your family, your city, your vocation, those concerns, your finances? The first question is the counsel of the Lord. What is God saying about the matter? So, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 1, it's one of those to really treasure. Now, from verse 1, we get the more well-known verses, 2 through 4, are very well-known, about write the vision, make it plain, that he may run who reads it, that whole stuff. But he doesn't say, God doesn't say, write the vision, make it plain, until Habakkuk says, I'm willing to stand and wait to see what God says. So, hearing comes before, seeing comes before writing the vision. In other words, if we don't have a vision, we can't write the vision. So the first thing to do is to get a vision from God for him to open our eyes to see from his perspective. So number one is the counsel of the Lord. What is God saying? All right, area number two. The condition of your soul. Number one is the counsel of the Lord. Number two is the condition of your soul. The condition of your soul. The first question is, what is God saying? The second question is, how am I doing? How am I doing? Where am I 
concerning God? Where am I concerning my own rhythms and trajectory? Now, being a watchman eventually does expand beyond yourself. But if we don't learn how to be watchful for ourselves, then we're going to end up in an unhealthy place. We will give access to the enemy. We won't be useful for our community. We won't be able to be activated in intercession. If we are cold, if we are calloused, if we are compromised, it creates interference in our ability to be united with the heart of God. It does not sever us from the love of God, but it's an interference in our ability to be united with the heart of God for the sake of others. So first we ask, what is God saying? Second we ask, how am I doing? Am I receptive to what God is saying? Am I obedient to what God is saying? See, one of the scriptures I love, I wasn't planning on referencing this one, but one of the scriptures I love is Ezra chapter 7, verse number 10. It says, for Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, ultimately, the fruit of his life is that he teaches the law. But first, he begins by seeking the law, which that is what is God saying, what's the counsel of the Lord. Then he doesn't go from seeking the law to teaching the law. He goes from seeking the law to doing the law, then to teach the law. In other words, I want to know what God's doing, then I personally want to apply what he says before I become a voice for the sake of others. That's that that's that second component. Watch us. How am I doing? What is the condition of my own soul? What is the condition of my own mind? What is the condition of my own heart? What are the conditions of my actions? So let's go to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be just spanning lots of different passages here in the Word. Revelation chapter 3. And I want to look at something that Jesus says to one of the churches. So Revelation chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Again, you, you know, we will have these scriptures on the screen. You don't have to go to every single one. You may want to just jot down reference notes, and you're welcome to do that. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. I know your works, you have a name, you have a reputation that you're lively. You have a reputation that you're fervent. You have a reputation that you're alive, but I know the internal story, and though you're known as one thing, I know you to be something else. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. What is what is Jesus's, not just diagnosis, but what then is his prescription for their problem? Beginning of verse 2. Be watchful. Be watchful and strengthen things that remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works, your per, works per, perfect before God. But notice the beginning of the verse. Be watchful. In other words, the reason why your reputation doesn't match your current condition is because you stopped being watchful for your own soul. You were fervent until you gained a reputation for being fervent. Then you stopped being fervent because you were so concerned about being a voice to everyone else, you forgot to be a voice to yourself first. And so in order for us to stay in rhythm with God, 
We need to be watchful not just for the sake of others. We need to be watchful for our own souls. Listen, I love everybody else. But when I wake up in the morning, I'm being watchful for me. Or whenever it is you have time with God. You know, it, th- there is a time and a place where you need to be watchful for your own soul. Let me go to another passage. I believe it's in 2 Corinthians. Again, they'll put this one on the screen as well. This one is one of those that's like, oh, wow, there's a lot to chew on right here. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 5. I won't read the whole verse because there's a lot to digest, but this, this is the first couple of statements. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. How often do we examine ourselves and test ourselves? How often do we take inventory? Now, I'm not talking about an over-introspection where you create this soulish paranoia about, like, you know, everything in your life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just a consistent heart assessment. Where am I with God? Am I walking in surrender? Am I walking in intimacy? Am I walking in obedience? Or am I living negligent over my own soul? Okay, so the first question, the first area of watchfulness is the counsel of the Lord. What is God saying? The second area of watchfulness is the condition of our soul, the condition of your soul. How am I doing? The third area of watchfulness is the condition of our community. The condition of our community. What is that question? The third question is this. How are we doing? Question number two is how am I doing? Question number three is how are we doing? Because we're called not just to be a watchman for ourselves. We're called to be watchmen for each other. Now this is where it's really important to recall to mind the second sermon in this chapter about an intercessory heart. Because if you don't remember that the heart posture of the watchman is an intercessor, then you can use this third question to stir up gossip, gossip and judgment toward one another. The point of asking how are we doing is not so you can be judgmental toward others, nor is it to talk about others behind their back. The whole reason you ask how are we doing is so that way in the place of intercession, you're able to cover your brother and your sister in the Lord and recognize that we have all, all have areas of weakness where we need each other. I read a devotional years ago from Oswald Chambers that really spoke to me. He said, when you see a fault in a brother, you can either act like Jesus or act like Satan. How do you choose? Jesus is always an intercessor concerning faults. Satan is always an accuser concerning faults. So when you see a fault in a brother, you can become his accuser and allow the voice of Satan to get through you, or you can become his intercessor and allow the voice of Jesus to get through you. So that's the question in front of us. Now, when we, when we talk about this third area of watchfulness, the condition of our community, so number two is the condition of our soul. 
number three is the condition of our community. We all have varying spheres of responsibility here. Now, we all have some sphere of responsibility. I'll end with that in just a moment. But we all have varying spheres based upon the level of responsibility we carry within the community we're a part of. When I talk about our community, I talk about our church community. I talk about your neighborhood. I talk about your workplace. And what that looks like for you is varied, uh, you know, different from the person beside you based upon your roles and responsibility. For instance, someone like people like pastors Joe and Stacy, who are leading this congregation, they have a different kind of responsibility in prayer than you may have in prayer concerning this congregation. Let me show this to you in Hebrews chapter 13, how pastors are not just called to be pastors of their community, they're called to be watchmen for their community. This is Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 17. Hebrews 13, 17, this is a great one to, to know, not just because of the vocation it gives to leaders, but the charge it gives to us as those who are um, under their care. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you. That word rule is lead you, who rule, lead over you in a position of authority. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Why? For they watch out for your souls. As those who must give account, let them do so with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. In other words, what it's saying is you need to hear Hard feedback from leaders, not because they're trying to get in your business, but because God divinely gave them a responsibility to be a watchman in your life. And whether you realize it or not, the things that they deliver from this pulpit it is being delivered from a heart of intercession and a place of care for this community. So that's why we've got to be like Habakkuk and say, even if the counsel of the Lord coming to us through our leaders is hard, I still want to hear it. Even if it is correcting me in the areas I need to be corrected, I still want to hear it. Why? Because I see them not just as the leaders of a charity, but as watchmen for my soul. Now, that's not putting an undue expectation on leaders. Ultimately, Jesus is your watchman. But the way he uses Christian community is his heart for you, in part, gets expressed by the people around you especially the leaders in your life. So that's why we come to the leaders of the church with a heart of humility that says, I want to receive the feedback you give because I understand your vocation as a watchman. But let me show you back in Genesis how this call to be a watchman for your community is not just a call for the pastors of churches. It's a call for every single one of us. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 4, verse number 9. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 9. It's a really well-known verse, and it has a watchman component that many times we overlook. You know the story, Cain and Abel, you know, that whole situation, the first brothers, the first envy, the first fight, the first sibling rivalry. You know, I got to remind myself, man, when my kids fight with each other, it's kind of like ingrained, isn't it? I mean, the first brothers, it didn't turn, I like, that happened, the sibling rivalry thing. No, my children will love each other in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Genesis 4.9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Now at this point, Cain's already murdered him. But, but it's interesting, the question, where is Abel your brother? And watch how Cain responds. And he said, I do not know, am I my brother's 
keeper. That word keeper in Hebrew is the same word used in Isaiah 62. When it says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. You know what Cain said? Am I my brother's watchman? The answer, Cain, is yes. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes, you are. You should have been concerned about his condition enough that you overcame your own envy and celebrated what God was doing in him and let it challenge you. And way too often we refuse to be each other's keepers because we envy each other so much that we would rather see each other destroyed than used instead of us. So Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord doesn't answer him directly, but the conclusion is yes. He wanted to know if you knew where your brother is. And there's that question, do we know where each other are? Not out of judgment, not out of criticism, but out of intercession. Do we know each other by the Spirit? I know that we look at each other and say, how are you? Great, how was your week? It was okay. But, no, but do we know each other by the Spirit enough to say, God, I want to take my post as a watchman, as an intercessor, not just for cities at large. That's convenient because we don't have to know people in that context. Now, I love that. I'm all about that. Love for cities. It's all part of the message last week. But there's also something different when you get ingrained in relationship and you're still willing and able to intercede for someone that you know all of their stuff. And you know all the reasons why that their actions, in, at least in part, contributed to where they are, but you still cry out to God for mercy and breakthrough. All right? So, are you, am I, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are, Cain. We are each other's watchmen. So that's the, what, what are we on now? Is that the third area of watchfulness? <clears throat> that was three. Okay, so number one is the counsel of the Lord. What is God saying? Number two is the condition of our souls. How am I doing? Number three is the condition of our community. Not just how am I doing, how are we doing? How are we doing as a body? Number four, the strategies of the enemy. The fourth area is the strategy of the enemy. Here's the question. What is he attempting? I didn't say what is he doing. I said what is he attempting? Because he has no authority to do anything unless we give him that authority. What is the enemy attempting? Now, I intentionally put this one down the list because it's not the highest concern in my mind. The better concerns are what is God saying, how am I doing, and how are we doing? If we will do those three things, the fourth one will become a barely a footnote. If we will lean into, into the counsel of the Lord, guard our own hearts, and guard the faults of our brothers and sisters, it will close so many access points to the enemy, he won't be able to get into our midst. And the question, what is the enemy attempting, will be an external question, not an internal question. But so many times we have to deal with number four because we don't do the first three. And so the first three get neglected, and the fourth one, what is the enemy attempting, becomes, becomes this like insurmountable thing of the works of the enemy in our midst, but had we just quieted our soul enough to, to listen to the Lord, check our hearts, and check on our brother and sister in the Lord, so many plans of the enemies would be just simply snuffed out. 
The reason why Cain could not be Abel's watchman is because Cain was not his own watchman first. God said, sin is crouching at the door, it's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. And because Cain was not his own watchman, he was not able to be his brother's watchman. He allowed himself to be accessed by the enemy and therefore became a conduit of the enemy. All right? So what is God saying? How am I doing? How are we doing? Number four, what is the enemy attempting? Now, I do not like, I'm not prone to being so enemy conscious that I go around chasing demons all the time and making every difficulty in my life a battlefield of spiritual warfare. However, neither do I neglect the reality of spiritual warfare. If you neglect the reality of spiritual warfare, you will become a victim of spiritual warfare. One of the quickest ways to get under the, the, the raging sound of the enemy is to act like there is no raging sound of the enemy. The awareness is almost like part of the way in which we overcome what he's doing. Simply being aware. So I am not a spiritual warfare paranoia guy, but neither am I a spiritual warfare ignorer guy either. There is a balance where your focus is submitting to God, guarding your heart, caring for each other, and then in that context, you're aware of the enemy. So let's go to a couple of different scriptures to look at that. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And I believe it's probably verse number 10. No, this is not the right scripture reference. See, it's actually 2 Peter. Uh, so I can, say, can you guys put that on the screen? The what are the Peter script? First Peter five eight. There we go. First Peter five eight. Now notice the watchman language at the beginning. It says, "Be sober, be vigilant." This is watchman language. Actually, some translations instead of putting the word vigilant, it says watchful, because this is what watchmen do. They're clear headed. They have clear eyes, and they're vigilant at their post. Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. So the reason we need to be watchful and vigilant is because the enemy is roaming about looking for access points. So when we are aware of those access points, it equips us to have our defenses against him. Now, if we, again, if we skip the watch area number one, we will be vulnerable in the watch area number four because James tells us in the book of James, I have to distinguish that now because James the Lateran is here. And anytime I say James tells us, I know that the room doesn't know if I'm talking about James or James. So I always have to say James in the word, in scripture, James the brother of Jesus, James, like I always have to go into explanation. What does James say? James tells us, the book of James tells us, Submit to God. That has to do with the first three areas of watchfulness. What is God saying? How am I doing? How are we doing? Submit to God, then resist the devil. There is a call to actively resist the devil. If you don't know what the devil's doing, you cannot resist what he's, what he's doing. So there is a call to actively resist the devil, but first you submit to God, which is inclusive of the first three areas of watchfulness. All right, submit to God, resist the devil. The result is he will flee. 
So as a watchman, you are called to awareness regarding the strategies of the enemy, but without an undue emphasis on the strategies of the enemy. You are called to engage in spiritual warfare without making spiritual warfare the definition of your existence. Does that make sense? How, how to handle that in a delicate way? So that's watch area number four. Watch area number five. The uh, fifth area of watchfulness is this. The answers to your prayers. The answers to your prayers. So here's the question with number five. Where is God moving? Where is God moving? The answers to your prayers, where is God moving? I had a dream regarding, I'll give you scriptures on this as well, but let me tell you a dream I had several years ago. In the dream, one of our leaders at the ramp is preaching, and his name is Brian Beasley. For those who don't know Brian Beasley, he, if I had to characterize Brian, it would simply be faith. He is a man of faith, hungry for souls, but like faith is his focus, faith is his gear. So much so that he carries around <clears throat> a binder full of testimonies. He just collects testimonies because he loves talking about what God is doing. If you ever hear him preach at a ramp conference, most of the time he's preaching stories because he loves not just talking about stuff God did, but what God is doing today because it awakens faith for revival in our lifetime. And so Brian's a man of faith, he's a man of testimony. And so in the dream, he is preaching the ramp and he says this, Jesus told us to watch and pray. The problem is that no one is watching. And I knew what he meant by that, is that we are praying a lot, but after we pray about a thing, we're not watching to see if the thing is coming. And it was crippling us in the area of faith because we're constantly making requests, but we're not constantly looking to receive the thing we're requesting from God. If we're going to operate in a faith-based prayer that causes movement, we have to not only watch for the plan of the enemy, watch for the counsel of the Lord, we need to watch when we pray about something to see when that something is on its way in coming. We have to be vigilant to see where is God moving and how do I celebrate that in my life. So let's go to a couple of different scriptures. We're going to go to the book of James. James chapter 1. And I want to show you here how it calls us to be watchmen regarding our own prayers. The answers to our prayers. Area number 5. Okay, so it's James chapter 1, starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if you need something, wisdom, ask from God. We love that verse, verse 5. <clears throat> but 6 through 8 is so fascinating. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from God. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What it's saying is when you ask God for something, watch and expect to receive that something. Because if you're not expectant in the area you just prayed, you'll never receive what you just prayed for. 
You need to pray for it and then look for it. Because when it comes, if you're not looking for it, you may not receive it. So the question is, where is God moving in my life? And how can I celebrate it? If you start asking yourself the question, where is God moving? You'll start seeing it all over the place. If you don't ask that question, you'll stay asleep to significant things God's doing because sometimes they come in subtle beginnings. Significant movements of God have subtle beginnings. And the reason they start subtle is because it's almost a test to see whether or not we're looking in faith for God to move. Let me show you this other passage in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, there is an all-night prayer meeting. Amen. We all feel more connected to it already. There's an all-night prayer meeting for Peter because James, in the Bible, had just been beheaded. And now Peter is arrested, and he's about to be killed as well. So the church stays up all night in prayer. They are praying so, watch this. They are praying so fervently, God sends an angel down from heaven into the prison cell. And the angel walks in, and it says it smites Peter on the side to wake him up. That brother knew how to sleep. Like an angel walks in, it doesn't wake him up, and he has to hit him on the side to wake him up. Peter wakes up, the chains fall off. He thinks he's having a dream or a vision. He doesn't know that it's real. And the angel's like opening up gates. He's going through, and Peter's like, this is an amazing dream. And then when the angel leaves him, he kind of comes to himself. He's out in the middle of the city, and he's like, that wasn't a dream. Like, where am I right now? And so then he goes to a house church where the all-night prayer is going on. Watch what happens when he shows up at the door. This is Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 14. He knocks on the door. door. A girl named Rhoda comes to answer. I don't know why I always love that. It gave her name. I don't know why. All right, Rhoda at the door. Verse 14. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. All right. They're praying all night long. So fervently and so effectively, God sends an angel from heaven to get Peter out of prison. That's effective prayer. I would say that's faith-based prayer. Rhoda gets so excited that Peter's at the door, she forgets to open the door and runs back into the house to say that Peter is there. Watch how the praying, fervent church responds. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. You are insane. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, so they said it is his angel. Okay, they had more faith to believe that the angel of Peter, the spirit of Peter showed up than to actually believe God answered their prayers when they prayed. They had more faith that Peter's spirit somehow left his body and showed up in their house than to actually believe that God could do what they were asking him to do. So they were able to pray the prayer, but they didn't have the faith to receive the prayer. We must be watchmen for our own prayers. When we pray something, we need to have our eyes open and say, where is the something? Where is God moving? Verse 16, now Peter continued knocking. He's out on the street. He's like, if you don't open the door, my he- they're going to take me back to prison. Like, they're coming after me. Open this door. So he just keeps knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, 
they were astonished. <laughs> I love it. They're like, God actually heard us. They were astonished. So that's the fifth area of being a watchman. The answers to our prayers. We need to watch in the area of the answers of our prayers. We need to ask the question, where is God moving? The sixth area, and this, this will wrap, wrap it up. This one is its own chapter all by itself. We're going to touch it and leave it and then pray and say hallelujah and uh, eat lunch because fasting's over. Unless the Lord told you to keep going, but anyway. Some of you are like, no, he would not. The sixth area of watchfulness is the return of the Lord. The return of the Lord. As I said, that's a chapter all by itself, but let's look at a few scriptures. As we're looking at these, let me give you the question to ask. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, verse number 15. Here's the question to ask. How are we preparing? How are we preparing? He's coming. Are we preparing? He's coming as king. He's coming to rule and reign. He's coming to a city. What are we doing about his return? And are we preparing? Or have we bought the narrative of the spirit of the age that mocks the idea that Jesus would physically come back to the earth? 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that in the last days, scoffers and mockers will come who will say, where is the promise of his appearing? For since the days of our fathers, all things have continued as they are. You know what that is? That is the spirit of the age mocking the idea that we live in a storyline that is not yet finished. The spirit of the age says there is no storyline. There's only materialism. So live for materialistic hedonism. Live for your own pleasure. Get as much stuff as you can. For today we eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we'll die. But the narrative of Scripture says we live in a story that is not yet finished. And the final chapter is coming. The final chapter, his name is Jesus. The heavens will open and he will descend from heaven with a shout, riding a white horse. And when he comes, there are things he comes to do. Are we preparing for what he has planned when he descends from heaven? So, yes, we need to ask the other five questions in those areas of watchfulness, but if we neglect this sixth area, we are being unfaithful to our call as the Christian church defined by this passage, defined by this book, I should say. How are we preparing? Jesus says in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Not because he's coming to steal, that's somebody else. His name's Satan. He's coming as a thief, which means he comes when most men are asleep. He comes when he's unexpected. He comes in a way that you do not anticipate. That is the nature of his coming. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches. Watches for what? Watches for his coming. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. What does he say? What is this whole thing about garments? Garments in the book of Revelation over and over again talk about the deeds of the saints. 
And what it's saying is when you are watchful for his return, it does not paralyze your Christian activity. It energizes your Christian activity because you know there are things that need to be prepared in order for him to come. So when you are watching for his return, you stay engaged in preparation. Can I just say something? It is odd that the return of the Lord is not consistently within our consciousness. There is not a bride on the earth that ignores her coming wedding day. Have you ever considered that in the book of Ephesians, it doesn't call us the wife of Christ, it calls us the bride of Christ? Why? Because we're betrothed and our wedding day is still to come. We are in a season of preparation and longing for that eternal uniting with our bridegroom named Jesus. If I was engaged right now, which I'm not, I'm married right now. But let me go back to the days of my engagement. When we were engaged, if Delena never mentioned our coming wedding day, I would be concerned about the degree of her affection for me. If it was never a topic that came up, if it was something that was out of, out of sight, out of mind, if there was no sense of excitement, if there was no sense of preparation, if it's like, yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll happen when it happens. No reason to talk too much about it. That's exactly how we handle the return of the Lord. It'll, it'll happen when it happens. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Don't, certainly don't teach on it. Don't, don't pray about it. What, what do I have to pray? It is unnatural for a bride to not long for her wedding day. And if we're not watching in this area of the return of the Lord, it's an indicator that there's still some things the Lord needs to do in us to get us ready. This is where the watchman comes in. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. And this will be the last. There's, again, so many scriptures. We're skipping, skipping, skipping. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. In it we read a parable of ten virgins waiting for a bridegroom. Five were wise, five were foolish. What does that mean? Five had oil to last the night of waiting. Five did not. And what I want to say about these ten is this. They were all virgins, which means they were all pure, but only half were prepared. So the question of our second area of watchfulness is how are you doing? That's about purity. This sixth area about his return is a question about preparation. How ready are you for him to come as king? They were all pure, but only five were prepared for his return. But watch the role of the watchman in Matthew 25. Let's pick up in verse number three. No, let's pick up in verse number five. While the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. We have a tendency to fall asleep while we're waiting. They all had an initial desire for the bridegroom, but in the gap from when they expected him to come and when he actually came, they all fell asleep. They all slumbered and slept. 
And at midnight, a cry was heard. Who's awake at midnight to see the bridegroom coming to the city? The watchman. When everyone else is asleep, the watchman stays awake. And because the watchman was awake and watching, he had a voice to awaken others. You know what it is to be a watchman? It's to be awake where others are asleep. So you can be united with God's heart, have access to its counsel, labor and prayer. And then through you, God, use you, God uses you like this watchman as a voice to wake others up and prepare them for the return of the Lord. What happens when the watchman uses his voice, verse 7, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Where they were sleeping, the voice of the watchman awakened them. And because the voice of the watchman awakened them, they prepared for the bridegroom's return. God wants to use you in ways that you can't even fathom. But first, there has to be a vigilance in your life. It says, God, I'm willing to be interrupted. I'm willing to watch. I'm willing to pray. Equip me, Lord, to stay in rhythm with you. I want to be one of those that stays awake even when others fall asleep. If you will stand on your feet this morning, we're going to take a few moments and just worship and pray for a moment as we say yes to this call from the Lord. You know, there's a lot to digest, lots to think about, a lot of scriptures, a lot of ideas that came your way this morning and over the last couple of Sundays. So where do you start? Again, you just start with a willing heart to say, Lord, I, I, I want to grow. Some of these areas of watchfulness, I'm aware, are new for some of us, especially this sixth area of the return of the Lord. If it's new, that should not be an area of condemnation, like, wow, why don't I know more here? It's an area of invitation to say, Lord, that is such a foreign idea to me, but I want to grow in understanding. I want to grow in your word. So right where you are, I want to invite you to open your heart to the Lord, perhaps lift your hands in a receiving posture as we simply say yes to him and ask him to make, make us his watchmen. So you're about to pray, but let me say this about Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman. In other words, Ezekiel, it was a work that I did in your life. I gave you what you needed to be a watchman. So let's ask the Lord to make us the watchman he's called us to be. So Lord, here we are this morning. We say yes to you. We ask that you would make us your watchmen, make us your friends. We recognize, Lord, that we cannot do anything for you that did not first come from you. So Lord, we thank you that this word is from you, the grace is from you, the call is from you. What you're doing, Lord, it's all from you. Lord, that we were created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10, for good works, which the Father prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Lord, we ask that the good work of being a watchman, it would be activated in our lives by your Spirit. That Lord, you would do in us what we can do our, for ourselves. Make us vigilant, make us sober. We say yes to the process, we say yes to the call, we say yes to the growth, we say yes to the rearrangement, 
We say yes to the interruption. We bring to you a willing heart. And we know that you'll do in us, God, what we can't do for ourselves. Make us your watchman. We say yes in Jesus' name.